Good evening. You can open up in your Bibles with me to the book of Job in chapter 3. Now we've been in this book for just two weeks already, and in those two weeks we covered chapters 1 and 2, which is the narrative part of this, not the poetic part of this book. As we begin in chapter 3, it becomes poetry till just about the end of the book. So we'll be studying this a little differently than we studied the first two chapters, or differently than even the way that we study most of the books of the Bible. It's important to note that we're going to go through several cycles of debate between Job and his three friends that we were introduced to last week in chapter 2. His friends are Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. We're only going to deal with Eliphaz this evening, but Job is going to share a few things, and then Eliphaz is going to share a few things, and then we'll get into it next week. Job's going to respond to what Eliphaz had to say, and then Bildad's going to say something, and then Zophar is going to say something. And all these times, it's a cycle of debate going back and forth in poetic form between Job and his three friends. In the process, many things are said, many things are supposed. Most of what is shared is not true about Job by his friends. His friends come to very wrong conclusions about why Job is suffering. The things that Job shares, for the most part, are true. Uh, Some of what he shares, though, shows his lack of understanding, which we all share. We all have a lack of understanding of God and his ways. So it's important to mention that because this is not a book of doctrine. This is not a book where you can quote a verse and say, see, the Bible says, because so much of what's said isn't really correct because it's said by people who are mistaken. And when we get to the end of the book, God says so. God says that the things that were said were mistaken. They were mistaken about God and his nature. They were mistaken about Job and why he was suffering. And much of what they espoused, much of what they declared really is, is, is incorrect. So that's why it's important to say that up front, okay? doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. It just shows us that men can come to the wrong conclusions about God and about what he does and why people suffer. So that's really what we're going to see this evening. We're going to get into what is the first cycle of debate. We're not going to finish it, but we are going to begin it. And uh, we're going to look at just chapters three through five, three chapters, a little bit of reading. I'm going to read large sections of the book because you have to sort of absorb all of it at once, and then we can go back over and just summarize. So that's how we're going to approach it. Uh, But this is part one of the book, the poetic part of the book, where Job is falsely comforted by his friends, and this will, his three friends. This will take us all the way to chapter 31. Let's open the word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for understanding and the ability to absorb your word. We ask for the ability to see beyond the thinkings and the musings of men and to see the truth in your word of, as to who you are. And when men and women come to wrong conclusions about you, may we go to your word to see the truth of who you are and how you love us, and how while we experience suffering in this life, you never leave us nor forsake us. You're always working all things together for our best, for our good. And help us to remember that as we discuss all that we see in these three chapters this evening. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, let's start with Job. Job now begins to speak. Up until this time in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he just sort of, we just sort of saw him say a few things in response to his suffering. But now, in verse 1 of chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for the daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Now the poetry, Hebrew poetry, and the poetry of Job is that of repetition, reiteration, saying the same thing a number of different ways. We think of poetry in our culture as rhyme. Not all poetry rhymes, but the poetry that we're probably most familiar with is that poetry that follows a certain cadence or meter or has a rhyme on every other verse or every third verse. There are different forms, but we tend to think of, in English especially, we tend to think of poetry in that way. Not at all. In the Hebrew mind, poetry was more about how can I say something, say it again, continue to elaborate on it so that I say something so many times, so many different ways, without being repetitive, but reiterating the same thing a lot. So that's why I'm going to read a whole section, which basically in this section, in verses 1 through 10, Job is longing for release from his sufferings. So he's going to say things. And remember, Job is suffering immensely. For those of you who weren't here in chapter 1, Job experiences the loss of all of his livestock and his possessions, even his children. And then his wife sort of abandons him in his suffering. She's suffering too, but she abandons him in his suffering. And, and, and then we get to him being afflicted physically in a horrible way by Satan. God allows it. And now he's covered in boils. He's sitting there mourning the loss of all of these things, his family, his possessions. And now he's afflicted and he's in pain and in misery. So in the midst of this misery and this pain, he cries out and he longs for release from his suffering. You can understand that. You can truly understand that. You know, I am not going to weigh in so much on this issue, but if you've ever been with a family member or loved one who is dying and they're suffering, and and many of you have, I'm sure I certainly have, there is that moment of relief when they pass away. And it's not because you want them to pass. It's because their suffering has come to an end. Now, if that person is in Christ, especially, you you think, you know, at least I know they're with with Christ, they're they're in the heavenlies, they're not suffering anymore, and there's comfort in that because no one wants to see anyone suffer like that, especially if you love them and care about them. I mean, if you've had pets that were suffering, you know, most people, let's be honest, will go and they'll take their pet and they'll put their pet down because they don't want to see that pet suffering. Now, listen, people are not pets. 
People are not animals. I'm not advocating for euthanasia. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if you've ever been with someone who is suffering, you understand that when death comes, it is a relief not only to them but to you as well. I'm just being honest about that. And there's that part of you that wants that suffering to end because it's hard to bear up under. And if you were suffering the way Job was suffering, you would certainly want that suffering to end, even if it meant death. So this is, this is kind of dark, but his situation and his circumstances are dark. And he's being honest about how he feels. And what he starts by saying is, I just wish that the day of my birth had never existed. In other words, I wish I was never born. Sometimes people say that, oh, I wish I was never born. That's what he's saying here. He wishes that the day of his birth had never existed. And in the midst of talking about that, he mentions a few things. I just want to mention something. Uh, he mentions Leviathan. That, that creature is going to come up a number of times in this book. That, that creature comes up in Psalms and also Isaiah, but especially here in the book of Job. This is what we know, according to the scriptures, what Leviathan is. This is what we know about it. It's a large aquatic animal that could easily describe a sea monster or a dragon. Now, the thing about sea monsters and dragons is most of that we relegate to myth and to storytelling. And yet, every major culture in the world has dragons or some form of sea monsters. And so you wonder, was there uh, something in the past that maybe wasn't quite so fanciful or fantastic, that was the origin of people talking about sea monsters and dragons. Uh, The Greeks certainly talked about it. The Romans talked about it. The Chinese talked about it. It's talked about in Asia. Just about everywhere, people throughout the world talk about something like a Leviathan. Now, when Job talks about that, he may have been speaking figuratively. Remember, this is a book of poetry, so he may not be actually talking about an animal that, that that really existed, it may have been more mythological, but it also may reference an extinct animal like a dinosaur, such as a plesiosaurus or some other dinosaur we're already familiar with. There may have been many that we're not familiar with today. I remember watching one of the iterations of Jurassic Park, uh, one of the newer ones, and they had this like super huge uh, mosasaurus, I think they called it, and it you know, they had like one of those SeaWorld things in this, this one movie, and it came out and ate a shark, I think it was. And it came out of the water, and it was just enormous and huge. And I thought to myself, that's what we know about the past. That's what we know. But what Job is talking about may be something like that or something very different, but it's not hard to imagine that there were creatures on this earth at a certain time that, are, that are certainly could be described in this way. Now, one of the things we learn from the book of Job, also the books of Psalms and Isaiah, is that it was definitely a large, ready for this, fire-breathing sea creature. Because as it's described in the scripture, that's how it's described. Again, some look at this and say, well, it's mythological. He's speaking figuratively. And he might be. But there may be a source for this creature, this Leviathan, that is actually an animal that has long since been extinct. And I just thought I'd mention that we're going to see that again in the future uh, through our studies. And then the other thing that Job refers to, he refers to those that curse days or curse the sea or raise Leviathan. If you saw that in verse 8. Now, 
those who rouse Leviathan. That's actually a reference to what used to be called, and maybe still is, sorcerers. Uh, There were people who would pretend to be able to have the ability to sort of rouse such creatures, you know, curse. You see this in Greek mythology a lot, where someone sort of rouses like a a kraken or some type of sea creature, and it comes and destroys a city. Uh, That concept in the ancient uh, world was not foreign to Job or lots of cultures. So when he talks about those that would rouse Leviathan, he's talking about sorcerers who claim to have that power, and also those that would curse the sea or certain days. And so it's kind of a picture into the ancient past, but the language that's used talks about a large aquatic creature and those that would try to rouse that creature to invoke revenge against other people. So it's it's kind kind of fascinating. If you're familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, this is not foreign at all. This is very common. Okay, so he wishes that the day of his birth had never existed. Essentially, he wishes he had never been born. Then... He's already said that over 10 verses in a number of different ways in very poetic form. Now he adds to that and comes up with another request. Here he wishes that he just died at birth. So if if he couldn't not be born, he would prefer to have died at birth. And so he goes on in verses 11 through 19. And he says, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold and filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease and no longer hear the slave drivers shout, The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. So he's looking at death as release, okay? So that's why he's thinking, I wish I had just really never been born. I I wish that if I had been born, I had died at birth. Again, very dark. But consider where he's coming from. He thought of death as a place of peace and rest from suffering. He also described death as a place of equality among men. You know, our world today, our culture today, is striving, and I put this in quotes, striving for equity. We're we're well past now, way well past, equality. Okay, equality makes sense to me. This idea of equity is a little different. We want everybody to be the same. So if you're rich, we take your money and give it to somebody who's poor so that everybody can be the same, right? If you were disadvantaged, we're going to disadvantage somebody else and give you an advantage so that we can make everybody the same. This is this woke philosophy called equity, and it's ridiculous, and it's contrary to everything that I believe, and certainly most people do, who are people who are rational. This idea of equity, okay? Well, here's the beauty of it. When we get to death, and we're all in that place of death, we're all equal before God. That is, if you are rich, you don't take your money with you. If you were poor, you don't take your poverty with you. So if it's equity you want, before God, you'll have equity. But the truth is, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, in a sense, we're not all equal because if you're in Christ, death is something very different than if you're not in Christ. 
But for all those that die, it's not as if you show up in uh, the place of the dead, let's say in the time of Job, and you enter into this place called Sheol by the Hebrews, and, and you enter there and you had a little money, you know? And the Egyptians had this concept. You know, they would get buried with all their treasures so that when they died, to appear before Anubis, they would bring all of their treasure with them and it would secure them a position in the afterlife. Uh, even, even the Greeks, they would put a coin under the tongue of the corpse so that when they got to the river Styx, they could pay Sharon to cross into this area of Hades. So many ancient cultures had this concept that somehow you could take some of what you had in this world into the next. But that's not true. And one of the things that Job points out is once you enter into the place of the dead, it doesn't matter whether you were a king or a queen or you were a pauper. And that's essentially what he's saying here. He also, in addition to describing death as a place of equality, and not really equity, but equality among men, God testifies that none of these men in this book, in chapter 38 at the end of the book, he says none of these men truly understood death. So even Job, some of what he's saying is true, but they don't really know death. How could they know death? They have a a concept of death, but they don't really know it because they haven't experienced it. But there is one who experienced death and rose again and has told us everything we need to know about death, and that is Jesus Christ who conquered death. And we are told in John's gospel by Jesus that if we believe in him, we shall never see death. So Job had a limited understanding, but he did know this. You can't take it with you. But he's looking at death as preferable to the life he's living at this time. And he wishes, in many ways, he could have just died at birth so he didn't have to experience all of the sorrow and suffering he's going through at this time. Now, one of the other things, so he thinks, okay, I wish the, the day that I was born didn't exist. I wish I had died at birth. And now he comes up again, sort of this in this repetitive poetic way, a reiterative poetic way. Now he wishes that he could just die. So like I said, it's a little dark. He wishes he could die in his affliction because he can't do anything about those other, other times in his life when he was a child or the day he was born. But now he's thinking, if I could just die. So in verse 20, he says, why is light given to, to those in misery? Uh, and life, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. So life is pretty miserable for him right now. And so you could understand why he would wish that he could just die. He longed for death as a relief from, and a release from misery. And as I said in opening, that, that's something you can understand if you've ever suffered yourself in a, a severe way, or you've had to be with someone who you love that was suffering toward the end of their life. You could understand what Job is saying. He would rather have died than suffer the realization of his worst fears. And many people, when they suffer a tragic loss, someone they love is tragically killed, their first reaction is, I want to die. I want to die. I don't want to live. I don't want to live with this pain. 
And you can understand that. And some people take their life in their own hands because the pain is too great. I understand, I don't agree, but I understand how they get there. I understand why you would feel that way in the midst of tragedy at this level. Suffering, though, does have usefulness spiritually for those in misery and even for those who are, are, who are observing it. So, if you're thinking, oh, I wonder if Pastor Tim believes that euthanasia is okay, I don't. The reason I don't, as much as I, I don't want to see people suffer, I think that there is value spiritually, usefulness spiritually for those in misery, just like there was for Job and many in the, in the scriptures and, and in life, and especially for those who are observing it. When I see someone suffering, there, there's a lesson to be learned. There's a sermon in that. It's a painful lesson, but it's still a lesson from God. And when we, you know, unlike taking our pets to the vet, when we suggest that someone should be put out of their misery in a situation like that, you understand from the heart why you say that and why you feel that way. But in your mind, you have to understand, it is not for us to decide when life should be taken. And that especially extends to ourselves, but also to others. So hopefully that helps you to understand at least where I stand on the subject, but you can understand why Job is in this very dark place. Okay, so now Eliphaz, the Temanite, he hears this. He hears Job say these things. And he attempts to fix it. He attempts to remedy Job's suffering. In the next two chapters, he's going to try to fix the situation. He's going to try to assess what Job is going through and give sort of an answer to why he's suffering. Right away, I can tell you that is a mistake. In life, it is a mistake for you to think that you know why someone's suffering or even maybe why you're suffering. Now listen, if for some reason... You stand out in the middle of the street and you get hit by a car. I can tell you why you're suffering. Okay, it's pretty clear. You did a bonehead thing. You walked out in the middle of the street and you got hit by a car. All right, I get it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when someone's going through suffering. It's not something they asked for or brought on themselves. It's just they're going through suffering. They, they found out that they're sick. Maybe they have cancer. Maybe they have a condition. Um, whatever it is. And now they're in this situation. And when someone comes along and tries to assess the situation and assign blame or try to figure out why it's happening, analyze the situation and pontificate and offer their opinion, it's a very dangerous and heartless thing to do. But that's exactly what Eliphaz and his friends are about to do. And it's important to remember that for seven days they were quiet and that was a great comfort. Job. It's when they opened up their mouths that they no longer comforted him. In fact, they falsely comforted him. They actually made his suffering worse. And this is really the third test. The, the first test was his possessions and his family that he lost. The second was his health, his well-being, uh, his physical being, and now this being rejected by his friends. Let's look at verses just one through six. And here, First thing Eliphaz is going to do is justify himself, to justify why he has a right to speak to Job. In verses 1 through 6, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? 
But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Essentially what Eliphaz is doing is he's just requesting an opportunity to instruct Job. The polite thing to do, uh, give me an opportunity to tell you what you don't seem to know, to teach you, to instruct you. And in so doing, he's uh, criticizing Job a little right in that opening, essentially saying, you know, you helped others, let me help you. You helped others in your life, now it's my turn to help you. I have something to tell you. And here's what he tells in verses 7 through 11. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. I can stop you right there and just say, that's a stupid thing to say, but we'll, we'll keep going. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. As the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. He's poetically saying something that simply isn't true in the case of Job. He ideally believes that the truly innocent never perish. Just think about that statement for a minute. The truly innocent never perish. Nothing bad happens to anybody who's innocent. He also believes that the truly upright are never destroyed. So if you take that reasoning, which is clearly incorrect, and you think it all the way through, anyone that ever suffers is guilty of something in his mind. And if you're destroyed or something bad happens to you, it's your fault. That's where this man is coming from. He implies that Job is suffering terribly because he's neither innocent nor upright. Job, it's your fault. You brought this on yourself. Now, we know because we read chapters 1 and 2. We know that God said to Satan, have you ever considered my servant Job? Have you considered him? Talking about how righteous he is, right? Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But his friends don't know that. Even Job doesn't really know that at this time. So he comes to a wrong conclusion, this Eliphaz. He believes that it's Job's fault that he's suffering. And think about it. When someone you know is suffering, is that your first reaction? Well, they must have done something. Otherwise, they wouldn't be suffering. I mean, what a tremendous comfort this must have been to Job and his suffering, to be told by his friend, I'm being sarcastic, but to be told by his friend, oh, it's your fault that you're suffering in this way. And then he goes on, and this is, the, this is really, wow, the gall. Ready? Then he claims divine revelation and spiritual understanding. So he's saying, look, what I'm sharing with you is really a word from God. You know, I always get a little concerned when someone tells me something and then they say it's a word from God. I always get a little concerned. Because especially if it's a, not a nice thing to say, I wonder. I really do. So, for example, look at verses 12 through the rest of this chapter. Here he goes on very, how can I say, dramatically, says, A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on a man, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. 
A thorn stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth, Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Very dramatically stated by Eliphaz. But what he's saying is it's a claim to divine revelation and spiritual understanding. He's dramatically saying this came from God, not from me. Now again, when we get to the end of this book, you'll see that he was talking out his ear. And so many people that think they know why others are suffering usually do talk out their ear or their elbow. You see, the problem is you don't know why someone is going through a hard time. You probably don't know why you're going through a hard time. So to open up your mouth and start to say, this is what's happening. Oh, God showed me. I prayed last night, brother, sister. I prayed last night and God revealed to me why you're suffering. Do me a favor. Do everyone a favor. Do the world a favor and don't ever say that. Seriously. Because that is no comfort to a person who's going through suffering. Don't try to figure it out or fix it. Nobody needs that. All right? And Eliphaz should have just kept his mouth shut, which he did for seven days. That was the smart part of his time with Job. This is not. He goes on to rebuke Job, if you can imagine that. He rebukes Job and blames his own actions for his suffering now. Now he really goes on the attack. Look at verses uh, 1 through 7 in chapter 5. Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among the thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil... Nor does, it tr- nor does trouble sprout from the ground, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Very poetically saying, Job, it's your fault. You brought this on yourself. And he alludes to Job's trials there. He doesn't outright state it, but when he talks about the children, he talks about the crops, he talks about all the things that Job lost, he's alluding to Job's trials as the direct result of some unconfessed sin in his life. He's essentially saying you're not innocent, you're a sinner, and you need to confess your sin. Now, we know that's not true. And again, at the end of the book, God reiterates, it's not true. But this guy, this Eliphaz, really believes that he has some divine wisdom and understanding to explain Job's suffering. And in so doing, he's speaking a lot of nonsense. Then he goes on to instruct him to repent of his unconfessed sin and be restored in verses 8 through 16. This is his answer. This is the solution. This is how you fix it. Ready? But if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth and sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. 
Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. Now what he's saying in a verbose manner, what he's actually saying is, repent of your unconfessed sin and be restored. Do what's necessary because God can do miracles in your life if you simply take responsibility for your sin, the sin that caused your suffering. So if you're suffering, it's your fault, and you need to confess that sin so you can be restored by God. That's his answer. One little problem. He hadn't sinned. He hadn't done anything to deserve that suffering. But Eliphaz doesn't seem to think that that's true. And then he encourages them to get right with God in order to be blessed. You know, I've seen Christians say things like this. They make a lot of assumptions. Oh, you just need to get right with God and then everything will be okay. Well, how do they know that that person isn't right with God? Or that they're suffering because they're not right with God? They don't. They make assumptions. Look at verses 17 through 26. Blessed is the man, Eliphaz says. Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you, and seven no harm will befall you. In famine he will ransom you from death, and in battle from the stroke of the sword you will be protected from the lash of the tongue, and need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine, and need not fear the beasts of the earth. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. So this is his answer. Get right with God and you'll be blessed. Confess that unconfessed sin and you'll be okay. You know what this sounds like to me? The prosperity doctrine that suggests that anyone that's sick or suffering has done something to deserve that. And the answer you get from the pastor or the teacher or the elder is, you have sin in your life. Or you have a demon in your life. Or there's something wrong with you and that's the reason you're going through the difficulty you're going through. There's one little problem with that. It's bogus. Now, it's true that there may be things going on in certain people's life that are the result of unconfessed sin, but how do you know? Why do you suppose, why do I suppose, why do we suppose to be God? Better that we be silent and pray for that person and commit them to God and ask God to reveal to them in their hearts the truth. But pretending to be a physician, so to speak, or pretending to be the person that can fix everybody is very dangerous indeed and little comfort to the person that's suffering. So here what's happening is he's encouraging them, just get right with God and you'll get better and God will restore you and everything will be okay. One little problem, he was right with God. And then, in a very bold and arrogant way, look at verse 27, speaking for his three friends, We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. Wow. As I said last week, with friends like that, you know, (laughs) who needs enemies? Listen, it's a legitimate question. 
Why do the innocent suffer? It's a very legitimate question. I think we've all asked that question many times, I'm sure. Maybe in your own life, maybe in the lives of others. You've tried to figure out why is this person going through a difficult time? Why is my loved one dying slowly? Why are they in such pain? Why are they suffering? Why did this tragedy happen in my life? Well, listen, many of us, unfortunately, believe that trouble in life is the result of someone doing something wrong. That's just where we come from. I know how I was raised in my culture. If something bad happened to you, it's your fault. You did it. You brought it upon yourself. We believe that if we are righteous, we will not suffer. That's that way of thinking. Oh, if we're righteous, we're never going to suffer. And if we're unrighteous, we will suffer. So how many of us have heard the warning, if you do that, God will surely punish you? I heard that growing up. You know, if you do that, God's going to punish you. How many of us truly believe that God is only able to bless those that obey him? So we tend to think, well, God can't bless that person. They're in disobedience. Who are you to say that God can't bless whoever he wants to bless? He reigns upon the just and the unjust. So now you're going to be God. You're going to start making decisions for people as to who God is going to bless? I don't think so. But that's how we think if we're honest with ourselves. The book of Job actually proves that many innocent do, in fact, suffer. It proves it. And many upright are, in fact, destroyed. Because that's exactly what happened to a man who was innocent and upright. See, we find it hard to reconcile why terrible things happen to wonderful people. We do. Let's be clear. We do. It is easier to assume that guilt is the cause for their suffering than to wrestle with the truth. And that is that sometimes the innocent suffer, the upright suffer. We prefer to judge God's actions in regard to suffering as fair and equitable. See, we don't want to think that God would allow suffering in an innocent person's life. That's just too much for us to swallow. So this justifies his actions in our eyes and allows our standards to remain intact. See, we want to be in control. We want to look at life and understand it. We want to be able to come to conclusions that don't keep us up at night. The book of Job will keep you up at night. Because it reveals that God has a purpose in suffering. Sometimes we don't know what it is. And many innocent people do, in fact, suffer. Now, this performance thinking, let's call it that, performance thinking. It's the idea that you do something and something good or bad happens to you. This performance thinking is incorrect. But performance thinking is so attractive to us because it provides us with the illusion of control. It gives us this feeling that somehow we can control our lives. If performance thinking is true, all I need to do to not suffer is be good. And if I'm suffering, it's because I did something wrong, so I just need to stop doing whatever I did and I won't suffer anymore. How is that even remotely true of Job's situation? And it's not true of most people's situations. If we are suffering for doing something wrong in our minds, we need only repent and end all of our trouble. That gives us control in our minds. It's not not true, but that's how we think. This makes us feel safe because we can end our suffering by our actions. It's within our control, but it's not. But we think it is. But we soon live in self-condemnation and despair when our actions fail to end our troubles. So have you ever been in a situation where you're suffering and you think you're suffering because of sin and then you get right with God and you're still suffering? Now what do you do? Well, now you have to come to the conclusion that you did something to deserve it. And self-condemnation sets in. 
and then despair because you're thinking, I must really be a bad person. I must have sinned, the unpardonable sin. I must have done something wrong to be suffering the way I'm suffering. And it may not be true at all. In fact, it probably isn't. But all of this is how we think about suffering. It's not true, but it's how Eliphaz approached things. If we are not suffering in life, which is a good thing, we we want that to be true, right? If we're not suffering because we are righteous in our minds, that's why we're not suffering, then all we need to continue not suffering and not experiencing suffering, all we need to do to avoid suffering is just continue to do the right thing. And that breeds another problem. While it makes us feel safe, because then we feel like we can prevent our suffering by our own actions, it also breeds pride, self-aggrandizement. We begin to think that we're so good we can avoid trouble and suffering in this life. And that works just fine until when we're in for a rude awakening, (laughs) when difficulty and sorrow eventually come our way, and they will, then what do we do? Where does our pride go? (laughs) Down the drain. So you see where performance thinking will get you? Nowhere. Eliphaz is a performance thinker. He would like to think that we can control our circumstances by being upright, and when we're not, by simply repenting, it'll make the problems go away. This is an oversimplification of of life. This, This is looking at life in completely the wrong way. But there are so many religious people who look at life exactly like this. But I did all of my sacraments. I did everything I was supposed to do. I read my Bible every day. I took communion. I was baptized. I did everything I was supposed to do. Why am I suffering? Well, why was Job suffering? You can't answer that question, and neither can I. And that's the point. Now listen, in closing, God uses suffering. He uses difficulty. He uses trouble. And he does these things to prepare his servants for service. You need to understand that. The New Testament is replete with examples of the teachings of Paul and others that make this clear. It it produces perseverance. It produces character. It brings hope. There's so many good things that can come out of suffering. Not suffering itself, but suffering does ultimately prepare us for God's service. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. You ready? Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, separated from his father and mother at a young age, falsely accused of sexual misconduct, imprisoned by the false testimony of an admirer, forgotten by those he benefited in the past, but ultimately, all of these things prepared him for God's service. How about Daniel? Daniel was taken as a captive, as a prisoner by a foreign oppressor. He was separated from his friends and his family at a young age, accused of rebellion by his colleagues, imprisoned by the false testimony of his enemies, forgotten by those he benefited in the past, and ultimately prepared for God's service through this suffering. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was put in prison by his countrymen, deserted by his countrymen, accused of treason by his colleagues, imprisoned by the false testimony of his countrymen, forgotten by those he tried to deliver, and ultimately, through all these things, prepared for God's service. Job himself, taken captive by Satan with God's permission, deserted by his friends and family, accused of sinfulness and unrighteousness by his peers, judged by the false counsel of his friends, 
forgotten by those he benefited in the past. And ultimately, as we'll see in this study, prepared for God's service through his suffering. See, the point I'm trying to make is God uses suffering. Let me use one more example this evening. And you'll, strangely, everything I just said about Joseph, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Job is true of this individual. Are you ready? Jesus. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Taken as a captive prisoner by a foreign oppressor. Put into prison by his countrymen. Taken captive by Satan with God's permission. Separated from his father and mother at a young age. Separated from his friends and family at a young age. Deserted by his friends and family. Deserted by his countrymen. Falsely accused of sexual misconduct. Remember, he eats with prostitutes and sinners, right? Accused of rebellion by his colleagues. Accused of treason by his colleagues. Accused of sinfulness and unrighteousness by his peers. Imprisoned by the false testimony of an admirer. Imprisoned by the false testimony of his enemies. Imprisoned by the false testimony of his countrymen. Judged by the false counsel of his friends. Forgotten by those he benefited in the past. Forgotten by those he tried to deliver and ultimately prepared for God's service through this suffering. So don't tell me there isn't a purpose in suffering. If this was true for Joseph, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Job, and all of those things were true of Jesus, God does have a purpose in suffering. Listen, God is good. God is love. And yes, God does allow the innocent to suffer. Peter says so. James says so. Paul says so. Christ's obedience to God the Father on the cross is our wonderful example of this truth. God is in control. And is allowing the innocent to suffer only proves this truth. Even though we may not want to hear it. Now, if we could control our own destiny... We would never experience suffering, difficulty, or trouble. Right? Isn't that true? But God is preparing you for his service through difficulty, sorrow, trouble, and suffering. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank, uh, we thank you so much. We thank God in heaven that you give us an understanding in faith that you use all things in our lives, even the most difficult troubles and sorrows. You use all these things. You use them to prepare us for service to you. Lord, Lord, we recognize that you're in control of our lives and that you decide what we experience as we live. It's not for us to decide. And while we certainly would rather not suffer, in suffering and difficulty and trials and troubles and sorrow, may we trust you as Job trusted you, that it's possible to be innocent and upright and still experience suffering in this life. And it's also possible that you can work all those things for our good and for your glory. Help us to know that truth, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.